on the podcast this week, I sit down with Liz Barnes, the Vice-Chancellor of Staffordshire University. We discuss how they're training students for the jobs of the future with a heavy focus on degrees like computer science and how the university is working with employers to get students the vital work experience they need to give them a head start in careers that are as varied as e-sports and the rapidly growing video games industry to roles in the aerospace sector. Plus, we hear from Liz about her wider work as co-chair of the Stoke Opportunity Area, which I set up when I was Education Secretary to transform education outcomes locally. I hope you enjoy it. Liz Barnes, Vice-Chancellor of Staffordshire University. It's obviously been an incredibly difficult time, I'd have thought, for you with the lockdown and then working out how to welcome students back for an autumn term. Tell us a little bit about how the last few months has been for you. Hello Justine. Um, I have to say it feels great to be back in the university and particularly now seeing students coming on to university. Some of our international students are beginning to arrive but the last few months have been difficult as they have been for everybody Um, but I'm just so proud of how our staff and students have responded and and kept everything going and, and way beyond that done some fantastic stuff that we will take forward. Tell us about, in a sense, how the university's risen to the challenge on COVID-19. Well, as all universities had to do, we had to shift to um, all remote learning. Um, And that presents challenges for everybody, particularly for staff who are trying to, well, staff and students, juggling homeschooling and and all that brings with it, and teaching and learning. But they did that very quickly. But also our support staff put a lot in place. So our digital services team were running out to deliver computers and making sure that students and staff had the technology they needed to engage. Um, Our learning and teaching team and um, our support team for teaching were working and giving seminars to staff and supporting them in getting up and running for those that were a little less confident in delivering online learning. All of our student support moved to online support. So our careers team still providing the same level of support to students in their homes and mental health support for students, which has been so crucial through this period, has all been delivered remotely. So the whole university operation shifted to that operating from home, whilst actually we also had a strong team on campus making sure that the students that remained here, not only those living on campus, but those who stayed in their accommodation near the university, were all looked after and taken care of. Um, Our nursery was up and running throughout the period. And in fact, they had um, children turn up that they'd never seen before because parents who worked in the NHS suddenly found that the provision they needed might be closed, but they knew we were operating. And they That's turned amazing. to take our chil- their children. It's fantastic. So, so, so pleased with how staff and students responded. And do you think that as difficult and terrible as COVID's been, in a way, there'll be a bit of a legacy that lasts that's positive in relation to how you've been able to better support people remotely? And one of the things the university's always focused on is support for students and so in a way you've had to even go beyond what was already in place 
Yeah, there are a number of things that we've learned an enormous amount about and we'll take forward um, and look at how we build them into our practice beyond next year. It's not just about the blended learning that we're going to see during this academic year, but as part of our standard practice. But I have to say alongside that, you know, we need to recognise that this period has had quite significant impact on a lot of people, staff and students. And um, I think it's going to take a long time for us to help people recover from what they faced during this period. So it's that balance, but some of the great learning. So here's an example from, from mental health support that I mentioned. What we found was we could provide so much more support when we're doing some of it remotely. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually we can expand our service, reduce our waiting lists by having the remote support alongside where we really need it, the face-to-face. -face. And so we're redesigning our service now. So some people found it easier so, to actually yeah. get help remotely rather they than did. coming in to do face-to-face. -face. Yes, they did. And also um, we, we were already developing our bot to provide mental health support in the first instance, particularly where it's more around, it's, it's the early interventions where you're raising awareness of maybe where people need to talk and that they understand they've maybe got some challenges. So you, you avoid going into sort of the medical responses to mental health. We found that a bot works really effectively because students don't necessarily want to tell, they want to tell somebody, but they sort of want to remain faceless. There's something about dealing with what they might see as stigma involved with mental health. So just that opportunity to talk about how they're feeling. And so that whole spectrum of from, from the bot through to face-to-face -to -face support and hopefully avoiding it going to medical intervention, it's really helpful to begin to think in that way, but look at how we can reach so many more students and staff providing the support. And working with partners as well, you know, we use White Wall um, for mental health support. We've got a project running for students with Keele University and with our sixth form college. So working collaboratively as well to see what we can do. And of course, for the university overall, it really acts as a game changer for a lot of students who pass through its doors uh, across the region, really, and of course, beyond. Liz, tell us some of the work that you've done that we've been really interested in through the work on the Opportunity Action Plan about how you're reaching really to those young people and more mature students for whom going to university might have been a pipe dream but they've had the potential but you've had to work really hard to make sure they get the opportunity to realize it yes as you say i mean stoke-on-trent in particular really does have some challenge in terms of nearly 25 percent of our population of family families are in the most deprived in the country and they're the kind of families, you know, I don't talk about them not having those aspirations because actually they probably do, but what they see are the barriers. And so it'll be not the likes of us. And there are all sorts of things that happen through their lives that maybe get in the way of young people and their mature people accessing the learning and support that they need because it doesn't mean they don't have potential. You make the point lots of times, Justine, in everything you say around social mobility. So much is to do with your background and where you live as opposed to your potential. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. So it's about how do you reach those families that have always thought not for the likes of us? Or how do you get to the people that have had 
such difficult times in their lives. And so one project that we're particularly proud of is the one with the YMCA. Mm-hmm, that's and, and we run a program. Yes, and we, we, we have the Step Up to HE program. And we've worked with um, people, so one of our, uh, he's now a graduate, but he came to us, he'd, he'd been a, a drug addict from the age of 14. He joined us at the age of 41, 42. Um, so all of his life he's been fighting addiction and everything that brings with it. Um, and, you know, would be classed as sort of down and out. But he's graduated. He went on from us to do a master's degree. He then got funding to do some research and now he informs national policies on on drugs and drug abuse. Um, We've got a student studying with us now, just progressing into his second year. He lived on the street in Hanley for four years. He'd been in the armed forces. It didn't work for him. And so many people we know who live on the street were in the armed forces and have great difficulty in adapting to um, civilian life Um, but we work with YMCA to help these people transition into higher education because it isn't that they haven't got the capability and ability it's more that they don't know how but also that they need that support in transitioning because it's a long time since they were in school and then there are others that we work with um, throughout my period working in higher education I've always felt quite emotional when I've been doing events, particularly around foundation programs and mm-hmm. transition into mm-hmm. university, because you talk to people who tell you stories about how they were written off in school or how they were told constantly that they weren't going to make it. And, and then they, it just becomes part of, you know, they believe it. They believe they can't do it. And there's something about how you get to these people and help them develop that confidence and belief in themselves and then to see them come out the end is just incredible and in terms of what they go on achieve and, and achieve you know i can provide a long long list of the great things that staffordshire graduates do but actually that's the other sad thing for me is not all of our graduates come here to to go and get into high paid jobs you know my my vice chancellor's prize two years ago three, three years ago went to a mature student she was 58. She'd spent her life caring for her parents and she had some disabilities herself and she'd never had an opportunity. And then at that age, she came and studied with us. And when she left, she set up an LGBT group within the church. She set up a food bank and she did some postgraduate um, study with us part-time. So in terms of her and her confidence and that giving back element and getting more engaged with society, fantastic. But her ambition was never to go and earn lots of money. It was about, this is my time. This is my chance to develop me and do something for me. And I know I can do it. I think it's Um, really interesting though, this sense of people valuing opportunity and in a way for some people, the more they've, found it hard to come by obviously I think for all of us um we really value it but but then having had it wanting to almost feel like you need to put something back into a wider society to help other people who are still at that stage where perhaps they don't have the opportunities that's very much in a way I think what drove me on you know my journey in politics and with the social mobility work and the social mobility pledges just having a sense that 
if there was anything I could do to help improve things for that next generation, then that surely was a really great way to be able to put something back. Absolutely. And open the doors for those behind you. I think so often the stories you hear are about the doors being closed and closed very early in life. Um, And it's just so sad that that our young people coming through feel written off at an early age, age. And I think, I mean, it's a process in a way. We just talked about the work that you've done on like encouraging and reaching out to a cohort of people to become students who maybe never felt that that was a possibility but then there's all sorts of things that you do as a university to make sure that as those people come through the doors it's a big adjustment to starting to to study um, at a university things like the flying start program just make sure that for those that might find it a little harder because they've got a bigger life they're having to juggle studying around it you, you help navigate them through what can be quite a challenging first few first few weeks I guess at university. Yeah absolutely and, and we've literally just got um, towards the end of our Flying Start programme for this year's cohort and some feedback um, from some of our students who come with disabilities. Um, they come with their families some of them and the families stay in accommodation with them to help them to settle in and you know they're just amazed that they're here this year in particular mm-hmm. um, and they really really valued that opportunity to come along early to help themselves get used to the environment to develop that feeling of of security and safety being here but also being able to have their families um, and other support sort of wrapped around them and that's crucial so it's really important that we spend that time to help students to settle in and find their way. And I guess at the other end of the pipeline, uh, because I want, to, I want to make sure we come on to talk about the opportunity area work that you, you've driven forward locally as well. At the other end of the pipeline for the university is then connecting people up with the opportunities so that they can make the most of the talent that, that you and they have developed over that time studying. Tell us some of the the work that Staffordshire does, because you've really focused on some of the growth sectors that perhaps were less obvious maybe to to some some higher education institutions, but from a tech perspective have absolutely meant sure that your graduates have connected up with some of the the growth industries um, of the future in many respects. Yes, absolutely. As a university that's offered computing for 54 years, you know, who would have thought? <laughs> we've kept transforming our offer in terms of, of what's coming you know we're thinking about work of the future so again a lot of what we measured on and what graduates are going into who've got who've left years ago we're now talking about graduates for jobs that haven't even been dreamt up and so our you know our latest course the esports degree made a flying start because esports is a multi-million pound business across the world and there are so many opportunities out there and we launched our London campus last September why did we do that because we needed to align our game students and our esports students with the key employers in Europe London is seen as the sort of the center the capital of of games and esports and so whilst we've been there we've been connecting up with industry and making sure that representatives from industry are on that campus all of the time and our students are exposed to them they're getting placements with them um, another good example would be um, comic arts 
we have a degree in comic arts and um, I went over recently to talk to our students. In fact, it must have been lockdown before lockdown. So it was not so recently, but they were all working in the studio. And I went around and I don't think there was a student in there that wasn't working on a commissioned piece of work. Mm-hmm. So we were already hooking them up with those opportunities. And many of those students leave having sort of established the sort of the start of, of their own business in that industry or made those links. And of course, we always talk about Airbus placements for our uh, computing students in um, the helicopter division in Airbus in Germany. And 25% of their workforce are from Staffordshire University. Which is a staggering statistic, isn't it? And we have, you know, courses sponsored by Cisco and by Google, by Microsoft. So we're just linking them up with the key players out there, making Mm. sure they get that exposure. It's fantastic work. And it's one of the reasons why we were so keen on the Social Mobility Pledge, really to partner with you on doing the Opportunity Action Plan work, because there's a lot that we can learn more widely for the higher education sector from the work that you've done really um, across the board from, from reaching out to, to really a diverse student population to then nurturing it through and then connecting it up. But of course, Liz, you're very involved as a co-chair on the Stoke Opportunity Area. Tell us a little bit about the role you've got involved with that and, and practically what the Opportunity Area is doing on the ground in Stoke. So um, we're just so pleased to have an opportunity area here in Stoke-on-Trent, sort of again responding to the challenges that we see because, you know, the schools get criticised in terms of of the outcomes and and the challenges they have, but we have to recognise the challenges that those teachers are trying to address within their classrooms and with the schools. And so it's fantastic for uh, me personally to get involved in this, but also recognising the importance of the university as as a really civic university, Yankee University, working with its schools um, to help the futures of our young people. And working alongside Carol Shanahan, who is just an incredible lady in terms of her achievements, you know, so that link of the university and business and Port Vale Football Club, Synectics and Um, And I'll go on to say a little bit more about something else coming out of the opportunity area under Carol. But to actually bring us together, what we've done with the opportunity area here is brought together people that that can and are making a difference. And that um, investment from government in this area to help us help schools and to raise our game, but also to offer things that maybe we couldn't in the past has been fantastic. And there's a whole array of things that have been done. So I, I, I mentioned um, Carol, one of the projects that... Um, t- tell us who Carol is. So Carol Shanahan, is, um, she's the chief executive of Port Vale Football Club now. And she's also um, owner, chief executive of Synectics, which is a, a digital company sort of involved in uh, dealing with cybercrime, etc. And what Carol initiated... Um, and the OA has been involved in this, was providing, it started as a programme that was called Holiday Hunger. And it was recognising that we have children in this city that in school holidays, their parents would drop them at the library steps, school, you know, the um, public library steps and leave them there for the day. 
because they had nowhere to take them to. And um, they had no food. And we have families that, you know, free school meals, but what do we do in the school holidays? Mm-hmm. And, and um, Carol's initiative started around the, the food initiative, but actually what she learned, because she worked with the schools um, and through the opportunity area and working with the football clubs as well, Stoke City as well as Port Vale, um, it was also about safe spaces to play. Families didn't like to let their children out because they're not necessarily in the safest environment or providing activities that maybe the the parents never grew up being provided with activity and they don't know what play looks like and how do you help these children. So the Opportunity Area um, funded this project to grow and working with the schools, it provides across the city activities during the holiday time in schools. It's now connected up with the NHS and school nurses will be around and dentists. So working with families that maybe they really struggle to reach other times, Mm -hmm. foods provided for the children and for the families and, and to actually support this. One of the things we've said in the opportunity area, all the projects we've funded, we want to understand how we can sustain them beyond the life of the grant that we're able to award. And so what Carol and the team have done is set up the Hub Foundation, and that's now supported through Port Vale and Synectics. And this is now the Hub Foundation as a charity. It's been set up as a charity, and so it's fundraising to ensure that this programme called AUPDUC, which is a local (laughs) expression, um, (laughs) this this activity has continued. And I think over over the period of lockdown, They've delivered, it might even be up at hundred over 100,000 meals they've delivered during this period to families. And, and, and when they've delivered meals, they've also delivered little boxes of activities. It might be, it might be as simple as pens and paper, etc. But they've been working with a, a, a company, sorry, I should remember the name, providing activities to homes and food. So that's one example of an amazing thing that's come out of the opportunity area. I think what's really interesting is the recognition, which, which from my perspective, when I was at State for education was that, of course, school improvement, you know, can, can obviously be centred within a school, but it's not as simple as that. And the opportunity areas were about giving a local community and if you like, the, the people who really led it, um, starting with the schools, a chance to work on some of the things outside of schools that also affected learning inside of schools. What's really been interesting to me is how when the lockdown happened and COVID hit, I've talked to a number of Opportunity Area teams and in a way they've used the Opportunity Area team as a way of keeping education going. So it almost continued as this um this skeleton support that could at least coordinate that sort of lockdown support that you just talked about which i think is you know really innovative i I think bradford also were dropping off um food parcels that also contained lesson packs and pens and paper and stuff that parents really could use and have the confidence to use to help their children keep learning even if in many other respects, it felt almost impossible. Yeah, and another scheme, so as we move into our fourth year and we're just 
so grateful that we can extend this program to a fourth year. One of the things we were really conscious of is the difficulty that many young people are going to face going back to school and particularly the older children or young people that maybe will drop out of education. And so we started talking, we have had a project on transition, which has been particularly focused actually on primary into secondary. Yeah, which is which I think um, perhaps a, a lot of people may, may be less aware that one of the big challenges we've had is that often primary schools can be getting children absolutely to the right place. But then there are lots of reasons, aren't there, Liz, why yeah. that transition to secondary becomes really hard for, for some exactly. children. But what we're introducing now, and, and again, we've been encouraged as we do our fourth year to work in partnership. So working with Blackpool um, and with some other universities, with Edge Hill University, with Keele University, with UCLan and ourselves, we're setting up a mentoring scheme where our students are going to mentor young people in schools to keep them going. So it'll be an all year round thing where they're working with them, trying to raise their aspirations, helping them to understand what they might be able to achieve and trying to keep them on track in their education. And again, this is a model that, you know, the opportunity area is investing in to get it started. But the universities and working with Port Vale are also involved in this and the football clubs. Um, so Blackpool Football Club as well. We'll be looking at how we can make sure this is sustained so we can continue with that and using our students as role models for the other young people coming through because again in Stoke it's anywhere between 16 and 28 percent of our young people that progress into higher education which is way behind the national average of over 50 percent and so that again has come from the opportunity area and it is as you said it's all about the community there is it is not just the school's responsibility there is so much others can do within our community to help the schools in supporting our young people move forward. I totally agree on that. And I think for a long time, it was hard almost to have a debate about the fact that a lot of a child's development and a young person's development happens outside of the classroom. So there's, of course, a huge impact that teachers have, not just on helping children and young people learn, but on their wider development, but overwhelmingly, outside of school is is kind of how we all get shaped as as people and I think ironically what what coronavirus has shown is just how much that's the case because we've had a school shut down for all children of course some children have been in homes where learning has continued and, and you know parents have been able to to help do that others have been in homes where it's just not been possible and actually their parents may have had wider responsibilities they may have been even been looking after their own siblings you know let alone having the the chance to to continue their own study so i think if if nothing else it's really underlined that you can't just focus on education in terms of what happens in school you have to look beyond the school gates otherwise you, you're just getting a partial picture of, of how you can help a young person develop their potential absolutely and actually another part um we, we came up with um three themes that ran through all the projects that we were looking at in stoke and one of them was about parents because actually parents are the biggest influence on their children and um you know one of the problems we have a big focus on early years 
because that's the most crucial part. If we get it right in early years, we are more likely to see the children succeed as they move on through. And one of the first challenges is getting up, getting the families to take up the free nursery places, using those hours in the nursery. And there's something about, again, that do they feel it's not for them? What are the barriers? Why are they not there? And so we've done that focus and we've tried to engage more with parents and the same with the phonics and getting parents involved. Um, because parents are not bad parents because they want to be bad parents. They're bad parents often because they don't know. You know, they just need that help and support. I agree with that. And, and my sense was often that parents just want to know what good looks like. Yes, exactly. Once they know what that is and how they can do it, then it's like a weight off your mind because you know that you can do the right thing for your child. But actually, you know, if you're struggling, it's not always easy to ask for help or even to know where to go for it. One of the things we saw in a different opportunity area, which was the, the Bradford one, was this glasses for classes project yeah. they did where they literally just took the you know optician prescription um service if you like into homes and found that there are i think two to three hundred children who just needed a different prescription for their glasses and and of course once that was in place they found it a lot easier to to read and study and it made a big difference and you know, these are simple things but again a bit like with the stoke opportunity area they knitted themselves together with the local NHS and it, and it really made a big difference. Yeah, I mean, another intervention that um, the opportunity area here supported was Better Together, where we had social workers working with all of the schools. And um, that was fantastic because, again, it, it gave an opportunity for the teachers to better understand when students need, when children needed referring or families needed referring, but also about actually, can we intervene sooner so that we never need that referral? Mm -hmm. And so families were able to engage with social services at a stage when they really needed the help, which was before anything had to be referred on to a higher level. And that scheme now is actually being rolled out. Um, and a pilot across a number of counties. Which is absolutely fantastic. And in a sense, exactly, I think what we were all hoping the opportunity areas could achieve, which was to sort of allow a thousand, of I a thousand ideas tailored to local communities to be put into place in a way that a minister sat in Whitehall would never have known to do because they just don't know those communities as well as the people who lived there themselves although what was fascinating about setting up the project for me was just how many of the DFE staff had grown up in those opportunity area communities and then were really happy to either volunteer or go on the projects you know it, it really underlined that you know nobody nobody really cares about improving education in Stoke as much as people who are in Stoke and and the key was just empowering them and their schools to be able to really start to work together to turn things around. Yeah and actually you say that we um, I know the number of opportunity areas have been looking at the challenge we all have about recruiting qualified teachers well what better way to begin to address that than to grow your own you know how can we encourage more local people to study to be a teacher in our local universities and then they will they've got families here they'll stay here and so we can keep them you know recruiting through some of the bigger national recruitment companies they come in they learn the trade and they've gone again 
And so that whole thing about, again, that local community and recognising what we can do together to move things forward. It is really exciting. And, and you know, congratulations on all of the work that the Stoke Opportunity Area team's done. I, I know that it's been really hard work, but it's certainly paying dividends for, for children and young people locally. And of course, you, know, you talked about a career in education, Liz. Obviously, that's what you've had. Tell us a little bit about your own journey. Um, you're obviously very passionate about social mobility. Well, interestingly enough, um, I was a school teacher originally. <laughs> I was, yeah. and my, my first job was um, a PE and maths teacher in Longton High School in Stoke-on-Trent. There you go. So um, I didn't stay here forever, but that's where I started. And so, and we were, and at that time, I think we were the biggest comprehensive in England, or probably in the UK, a really big school. And so I saw the challenges um, as a teacher back in the day um, and recognized some of the challenges around attendance and behavior and all of those things. But also as a teacher, I spent a lot of time trying to think about different ways of achieving the same end, recognizing that some, some children need, need different things. I mean, here's one that, that might sound really simple and straightforward, but with, my, um, with, with some of the classes of, of it would be girls around the age of, 13, 14, I used to give over a, a PE lesson about once a month, just thinking about um, hygiene and self-care. And, and the, I'd tell them to bring their talcs and their smellies and they'd have a shower and they'd put makeup on <laughs> and those sorts. And that might sound really silly, but it was actually recognising some of the things that maybe they weren't getting at home mm -hmm. in the yeah. same way. So there's something about recognising where the gaps are. And then that thing about realising I went from a, a secondary school to work in a middle school, actually, which was quite an eye opener. And there I'd sometimes get children that would turn up maybe without their PE kit time after time. And, and initially school's response would be to tell the child off. But you realise there's something going on that goes way beyond the child. And it's about how do you begin to work with the, the family through mm. the child and begin to help understand and help the family to help the child, which is often, I can't afford it. You know, I can't afford the kit or we've got problems at home, you know. So very early on, I recognized sort of some of the challenges that children just engaging with education had because of the things that are going on at home. And then the knock-on impact that has for them at school when they feel like they're different from the other children because yeah. they're the one that doesn't have the PE kit and yet again and that then makes them feel a bit isolated and that then means it's maybe a bit more awkward with friends and all of that's that sort of outside of school it's a classic example of where it, it ends up impacting learning absolutely and um and the parents thing um with the maths I, i've quite often um I, I really had a problem when national curriculum came in because i used to say well i'm not ready to move them on to the next phase because if they don't get these basics right they're not ready to move on to this. And it's about how you manage that learning experience. You need to individualize it. But something else I did was I um, used to run a computing class for parents um, and computers, but they were, 
quite dated and probably mainframe type things. Um, but again, it was about how do you engage parents? And they got excited because it wasn't about boring computing. They did things like produce local newsletters and that sort of thing. So just do something to engage parents with their own learning. But also it means that they begin to see the school as a nice place to be because we do good things. And how did you end up going from there into the higher education sector? Well, this, this is only, it really, really was serendipity. Um, my now husband of 30, nearly 33 years was living in the Northeast and um, I was working and living by then. I was in, um, actually in Gavin Williamson's patch. I was uh, in Billbrook Middle School, which is near Codsall. And um, he, he sent me a job advert and it was for the recreation unit at Teesside University. I'm going to say, I take it that's your husband, not Gavin Williamson. Yes. <laughs> He'd been quite young to do that anyway. <laughs> he would, wouldn't he? Are you suggesting <laughs> I'm old, Justine? We'll <laughs> 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 scrub that bit from the podcast. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I um, applied for and got a job in recreation at uh, Teesside University, where I was basically organising recreation activities it was a lecturer post but predominantly it was all about physical activity for um, right. students but I did do some teaching a little bit for physio students and a little bit for um, recreation management students and I soon realized that it wasn't enough for me and I went off to um, Sheffield University actually and did a, a master's degree in medical science and and then moved in to join a research group there in virtual reality and medicine and biology. And by then, as I developed my academic background, I then moved into becoming a physiology lecturer at Teesside Uni. And there begins my story in higher education. And so I literally did start from um, almost non-academic in a university before working my way through every rank <laughs> to become a, a vice chancellor. Wow. It's a real journey and it just shows that I think for lots of people, if they look at someone who's got into that position of leadership like you have, Liz, there's a tendency, I think, if you're young to think, oh, they must have had it all mapped out and it was all kind of a straight <laughs> line. But the reality is that it very rarely ever is, to be honest. And we all have times... I was going to say when we meander around, I don't mean that. We all have times when we're heading in a direction and then something else just interests you and you think, maybe I should just give that a chance and see whether that might be something that could be a bigger part of, of maybe my life. And I think it just shows, you know, if you don't open things up, then you don't have that opportunity to just see whether you want to kind of have a bit of a change of tack. I think so my, my analogy has always been crazy paving. I always say my journey's not been a path, it's been crazy paving. But also, um, I refer to my mother-in-law and she always said, Liz, you make your own luck. And I said I ended up teaching physiology in, in Teesside. The reason that happened was I literally did go and knock on the door of the dean of our school of health and say, can I have a job? And I'd been doing some lecturing for them. And that's how it happened. You know, I didn't wait for a, a job advert to come out. I did something. I took it on myself to make something happen. And I think sometimes you do have to do that. You know, you've got to recognise that you create your own chances. And some, some work, some you win, some you lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what's the worst that could have happened when you knocked on the door? As you might well, have exactly. said, no, but still thought, 
actually Liz Barnes has got great initiative. So that was probably the worst case scenario of, of that outcome. But if you were looking back now to, you know, little Liz, um, or, you know, obviously not that many years ago, Liz, um, but if you were looking back now to your younger self, what kind of advice would you, would you give yourself with, you know, with everything that you, you, you've kind of found out along the way since? You know, it, it sounds, it, it's so easy to use these expressions everybody uses, but if you think about that, shoot for the stars and keep your feet on the ground, there's something about, and this comes to the social mobility thing again, have belief in yourself, you mm. know, aim high. Because, I mean, I never dreamt I'd be a vice chancellor and it was never my ambition, to be fair. Um, but there is something about recognising that there's so much in all of us. Find, find out what you're good at. And I've always said, follow your heart. Now, um, there's times when I watched my children and thought, oh my goodness, have I given the wrong advice? <laughs> Actually, there is something about follow your heart, believe in yourself, but also never forget where you came from. Mm. Now, I think sometimes it's too easy um, to lose sight of, we're all, we're all human beings. And we've all been on a journey and, and just remember, remember where you've come from and make sure you keep that door open for those coming behind you and you help those other yeah. people come through. So there is, I think those are probably my key messages to younger self. Well, they're really inspirational. And I think it's, it's brilliant work that you're doing at, at Staffordshire University and also on the Stoke Opportunity area. So Liz Barnes, thanks so much for doing the podcast. It's been a great pleasure um, talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Justine. Really enjoyed it. I really like what Liz said about her life story being crazy paving and the need to take chances when you see them. The reality is that most people's lives aren't a straightforward path with the journey laid out neatly ahead for them. I certainly didn't imagine for a second when I was growing up in Rotherham that I'd end up sat in Downing Street around the cabinet table via a career in accountancy. And it's why expanding opportunity and the work that Staffordshire University is doing is so important because it's more than just the degree subject that is being taught. It's also about developing students to be able to not only grab the opportunities that are there, but also to help them be able to create opportunities that aren't but could be through growing their self-confidence. And that's what Liz's story tells us. Often asking for an opportunity is the first step to getting one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit for Purpose. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating and share with your friends, family and colleagues. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes.